0: Fantastical things are afoot on the road to Canaan. A sorcerer named Balaam has been summoned by King Balak of Moab who has given him one task, to curse the Israelites. Two million people form a formidable fighting force and Moab and its king are naturally terrified. But when Balaam tries to follow the messengers sent to fetch him, his donkey refuses to budge it can see an angel which appears to be invisible to Balaam and which is blocking their path. Fed up of being beaten for not moving, the animal starts to talk. Yep, we're in one of those passages. But as with so much of the early part of the Bible, there is a big picture behind the seemingly unbelievable events in the foreground. Balaam succeeds in traveling to Moab, but he has God on auto cue and can only tell Balak what he is told to say. But, unbeknown to Balaam and the Israelites, he is not the only ace in Moab's pack. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible Episode 40: The Curse Blocker. Whoa, Episode 40 that's something. I can't believe we're only in the Bible's fourth book after so much time. This has to be as easy going as Bible podcasts get. No challenging questions, no deep theology, no obvious agenda other than to open the Bible up to people like you who may not know it as much as you feel you ought to. So here we go, episode 40. Balaam has reached Moab and King Balak has an agenda and points on it which need to be actioned. The morning after Balaam arrives in Moab, Balak takes him to a high altar dedicated to the pagan god Baal, which overlooks the Israelite camp. Needing to appear in control and to be putting on a show worthy of the money which Balak is paying him, Balaam demands that seven altars be built on the mountain's summit. On these, seven bulls and seven rams should be sacrificed. Moab provides the livestock, and Balaam and Balak kill one bull and one ram at each altar. Keeping up the theatre, Balaam tells the king to remain where he is while he retires to a barren height in the hope that God will communicate with him. God does talk to Balaam, but not to endorse his actions. Balaam's self-righteous bragging that he has built no less than seven altars falls on deaf ears. God is here to protect Israel, and if this means using Balaam as his agent to thwart Balak's plans, then so be it. According to the book, God gives Balaam a message to share with Moab's king. Fully debriefed, the sorcerer returns to the altar where Balak and his officials are waiting for curses to rain down on their enemy and effectively blesses the Israelites instead. In what reads like a stylized poem, Balaam describes how Balak brought him from Mesopotamia to curse Israel. But how can he curse and denounce those who God appears to have no problem with? He claims that he can see the Israelites from his craggy vantage point and that they are a nation apart. Balaam marvels at the sheer size of Israel and claims that no one is able to even count a quarter of its people. Balaam tells the dignitaries that he dreams of living and dying as righteously as the Israelites. These are heartfelt words and some of the most beautiful poetry in the Bible, but there is every chance that Balaam doesn't believe a word of them. He is, after all, simply repeating words that God has put in his mouth. Balak is incredulous. He brought Balaam here to curse Israel and now the man is blessing its people. The sorcerer is honest to the king. He can only speak the words which God gives him. What he might also say but doesn't is that God will never allow him to curse Israel and it shows how staggeringly Balak misunderstands Israel's God if he assumes that Balaam is wily enough to manipulate him. Undeterred Balak takes Balaam to another high place to give the cursing a second go. From this new viewing platform, the men can only see the periphery of the Israelite camp, but the king is confident that the location is good enough. He arranges for seven more altars to be set up and butchers seven more bulls and seven more rams. Again, Balaam tells the king to remain with the altars while he retreats to listen for God's message. A word comes, and on the sorcerer's return to the altars, Balak inquires eagerly about God's response. To his crushing disappointment, it is yet another fabulously poetic refusal to harm Israel. The message is that God isn't human, and so he doesn't lie, nor does he change his mind. He doesn't promise something and then go back on his word. God's order to Balaam is to bless Israel and changing this outcome is beyond the sorcerer's ability. According to Balaam, God has seen no reason to curse Israel. Instead, he seems especially fond of this nation and appears to have their backs. They in turn celebrate his presence with a kind of patriotic fervour that accompanies the visit of a king. Balak is told that God brought these people out of Egypt and, thanks to his support and guidance, they now have the strength of a wild ox. According to Balaam, there is no need for divination or other soothsaying in Israel. The suggestion is God simply reveals his will to Moses. More so, he has such incredible plans for his people that others will marvel at his achievements. What has God done, they will ask, or, in old money, what hath God wrought, the words tapped out by Samuel Morse when sending the world's first telegraph from Baltimore to Washington, D.C. in 1844. Balaam is now in full flow and describes Israel's people rising up like lions who refuse to rest until they have devoured their prey and drunk their blood. This is too much for Balak. Balaam may not agree to curse Israel, but there is no need for him to bless them like this. The sorcerer is unapologetic. These are God's words, he says. Truth is truth. He is just here to serve it up. Balak has nothing to compare God with. Moab's deities are all man-made, and he clearly has no concept of a God who actually interacts with his people. Also, Balak assumes that the locations he has been using have yet to impress God and that if he gets the place right, God will agree to curse the people who he has carefully chaperoned out of Egypt, across the Red Sea and through the desert. Again, Balam fails to impress upon his sponsor that the curse will never happen, however many altars are built and however much money is thrown his way. Scoring full marks for dogged perseverance, Balak leads his guest to yet another mountain with views of the Israelite camp. And again, seven altars are constructed and a bull and a ram killed on each one. The book describes how Balaam doesn't retreat like he has done before, nor does he employ dark arts to inquire about God. This side hustle is new news to readers who haven't been told about these divinations, And it suggests that until now, Balaam has been hedging his bets, using tried and tested techniques to glean information on the highly probable off-chance that God might not show up in pagan territory to a non-Israelite shaman. This time, Balaam looks down at the Israelite camp in the wilderness below them and appears to channel the words of God. To Balak's dismay, these words fall out of Balaam like a love song to Israel. He describes what he is saying as prophecy, as words from someone who has clearly seen a vision of God and who now falls prostrate before him. Israel's tents are beautiful, he says. They spread out like gardens by a river. They are like valleys, like fragrant aloes planted by God, like well-watered cedars. If you're unfamiliar with it, the aloe vera plant produces a clear gel and a yellow latex. The gel is used in many modern skin creams, especially those used to treat rashes and burns. The latex is used to make treatments for constipation. Back to the love song. Balaam paints a picture of a verdant, fertile, well irrigated paradise and promises that Israel's king will be greater than the king of Amalek, one of the most powerful Canaanite nations and that their kingdom will be raised above other neighbouring powers. He explains how Israel was brought out of Egypt and repeats his belief that with God behind them, the Israelites have the strength of a wild ox. He describes how they devour nations who get in their way, smashing their bones and shooting them with arrows. They are like crouching lions, he warns, then directs his eulogy directly at Israel, asking for blessings on those who bless the nation and curses to anyone who dares to curse it, which, given his audience, could be seen as a somewhat tumbleweed moment. Understandably, Balak is incensed. This is not the outcome which he has paid for, and he strikes his hands together three times to accentuate his utter disgust. He brought Balaam to curse Israel and the man has done nothing but sing its praises and wish it well. Furious, he sends the wayward wizard home and refuses point-blank to pay him, telling Balaam that his god has ensured that he gets nothing. Balaam is powerless to change the situation. In his defence, he did tell the original envoy sent to fetch him that he had no power to go off-piste and that no amount of money thrown at him can change God's will. Balaam agrees to leave, but before he goes, he offers to share what is about to happen to Moab as a result of its plans to ruin Israel. In his fourth message to Moab's king, Balaam unashamedly describes himself as a prophet, channeling the words of God and claiming to have, quote, knowledge from the Most High. Balaam claims to see into the future when a star and scepter will come out of Israel, crush Moab's skulls and destroy its people. Edom will also be conquered, he says, but Israel will grow in strength and a ruler will emerge from Israel to destroy any survivors. From his eyrie on the top of the mountain, Balaam can see the territory ruled by the Amalekites and throws a message of doom their way. From being the prime mover among the Canaanite nations, their rule will end in utter destruction. He can also see the Kenites, a tribe who clearly live in a mountain stronghold, and tells them that their nest may be set in a rock, but they will eventually be crushed by Assyria. Now a free agent, the words tumble from Balaam's mouth. Who can live when God is intent on destruction, he asks. He foresees an armada arriving from Cyprus to suppress Ashur and Eber. Ashur is believed to be Assyria, but the name Eber is dangerously close to Hebrew. Bible anthropologists understand this to mean a different branch of Noah's family, through his son Shem, the original Semite. Both these powers will be ruined, Balaam promises, before climbing down from his mountain pulpit and returning home. Balaam is to be believed, ruin is coming to all the powers in this region of the Near East. They must be uncomfortable words for Balak, who has never had to contend with a God who appears to fulfil his promises. The book describes how Balak goes his own way, and there is a sense of crestfallenness in these words. Whether the king heads home or to another nation which can help him avert the threat of over two million Israelites at his gates, readers are not told it is uncertain how the Israelites come to hear about Balaam's adventures in Moab. It is possible that he shares the details with Moses in the hope of obtaining the money which Balak failed to pay him or to spare his life if he was captured. While Jews view Balaam as a Gentile prophet, Christians maintain a more schizophrenic relationship with him. This is largely due to New Testament writers who believe that he is behind the ruse that creates infinitely more damage to Israel than his unsuccessful attempts to curse them. The disciples Peter and John, as well as Jesus' brother Jude, all allude to this, and these smears have successfully kept Balaam away from the top table of biblical prophets. While Balak assumes that a sorcerer's curse will fix the problem of Israel, Moab's women appear to have a somewhat earthier solution. Israel's red-blooded men are clearly complete suckers when it comes to a pretty face, and Moab's women use this to their advantage. Whether this is an organised attempt at destabilising Israel, or just oversexed young people curious about the exoticness of foreigners is unclear, but romantic liaisons take place. Where lines are properly crossed as far as the Bible is concerned is when the women invite their Israelite bows to attend religious sacrifices. Here, the men eat meat that has been sacrificed to Moab's gods and even bow down to them, yoking themselves to Baal rather than God. Such a dramatic betrayal so early on in Israel's history appears to infuriate God and, according to the book, he wastes no time in telling Moses what must be done. The ringleaders of the men who have behaved so disgracefully must be taken, killed, and their bodies exposed in broad daylight as a warning to anyone who thinks this kind of behaviour is acceptable. Distraught, Moses and the other judges tasked with looking after this vast desert encampment gather outside the tabernacle and weep. It is at this point that one particularly brazen Israelite parades his Midianite paramour right past the group of wailing elders. Phineas, son of Israel's high priest Eleazar, sees what is happening, grabs his spear and follows the couple to the man's tent. Catching them in flagrante, he skewers the two of them with his javelin. The book describes how the spear travels through the man and into the belly of the woman. Readers are given new information that a plague has been raging in the camp. The suggestion is that this has been triggered by the Israelites' fatal attraction to Moab and Midian, their women and their gods. Phineas's dramatic intervention is seen as the act that halts the plague, but even so, the book records 24,000 fatalities, around 1% of the population. God appears to be impressed at what he sees as Phineas' defence of his honour, and he puts in place a solemn agreement where Phineas and his sons will continue to be his priests forever. He names Phineas as the reason he didn't kill any more people in the camp, and though the hereditary priesthood is already in the bag guaranteeing jobs for Phineas and his male heirs, It is no doubt a welcome affirmation that God is pleased with him and an appropriate reward for attempting to keep the Israelite train on the track. The unfortunate couple killed by Phineas is named Azimri, a Simeonite, and Cosby, daughter of a Midianite leader. The book describes how God tells Moses to treat Midianites as enemies who should be killed because they intended to destroy Israel by using their women to seduce its men. After declaring that the Midianites are now fair game, God orders a second census to count how many Israelite men are left alive after the plague. According to the book of Numbers, Israel's men are counted in their tribal groups. Judah is the largest, with 76,500, and Simeon the smallest, with just 22,200. Readers are told that it was Reuben's descendants, Dathan and Abiram, who stood with the rebel Korah in an attempt to overthrow Israel's leadership, but that the line of Korah hasn't completely died out. If you haven't been following this podcast religiously, head back to episode 37 to find out more about the rebellion. A man named Zelophehad from the tribe of Manasseh is listed as having only daughters, and the total number of Israel's adult men comes in at just over 600,000. Moses is told that when it comes to land allocation, the more populous tribes are to receive more than the smaller ones. The location of land parcels is to be decided by lot, as should be the subdivisions allocated to each clan and family within a tribal group. All male Levites over the age of one month are also counted, although readers are reminded that these men will never own land. The book describes how Kohath was the father of Amram, who, with his wife Jochebed, becomes father to Moses, Aaron and Miriam. Readers are reminded of what happened to Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu for disobeying God's rules and are told that none of the men counted here by the River Jordan on the Moabite border were among the men counted at Sinai almost 40 years earlier. This is seen as God honouring his pronouncement that every adult Israelite would die in the wilderness as a result of their negative attitude towards their journey. Aside from Moses, only Caleb and Joshua are left alive from this earlier generation. Land traditionally passes through the male line, which is why five sisters take their case to Moses, Eleazar, and the rest of Israel's leadership team. The women can trace their bloodline back to Joseph through his son Manasseh, and their father Zelophehad is the man mentioned in the census for having only daughters. The women make it clear that Zelophehad had nothing to do with the rebellion led by Korah and therefore doesn't deserve to have his name blotted out from the history of the Jewish people. However, the women have no brothers and so have no control over their father's name disappearing. They ask if they can be given the land that would have been their father's when they arrive in Canaan and, as there are no laws currently in place to award women inheritance rights, readers are told that Moses has to consult God. Fortunately, the answer is a positive one, as God declares that the women should inherit their father's property, just as if they were sons. Thanks to their boldness, the law has now officially changed. From now on, if a man dies with no sons, his inheritance goes to his daughter. If he has no daughter, it goes to his brothers. If he has no brothers, it goes to his father's brothers, And if none of these are alive, everything simply goes to his closest blood relative. He may not have been involved in the rebellion against Moses and Aaron, but according to the Talmud, the book of Jewish religious law, Zelophehad is the man stoned to death for collecting wood on the Sabbath. So... After all his bribery and attempted supernatural trickery, Balak almost gets what he wants thanks to the time-honoured allure of sexual attraction. Israel's men lust after Moab and Midian's overtly provocative women, and the shield of invincibility that Balaam couldn't penetrate buckles immediately. But no sooner are women used as an object of desire than they are given rights, as a group of sisters are legally entitled to inherit their father's land. The book of Numbers is far from over. In the next episode, Moses anoints a new leader for the people of Israel. Revenge rains down on the people of Midian and, shockingly for Israel's commander-in-chief, some of the tribal leaders announce that they will not be settling in Canaan. Is Israel collapsing before it has even reached the promised land? Will the division break morale and dent its people's confidence at the time when they need it the most? The adventure continues next time. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Feel free to send any comments or feedback to content at holybiable.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast.